Well, what a joy it is for me to be back here with you uh, at the Rosenberg Church of Christ, the Great Road Church of Christ, excuse me, and uh, in Rosenberg. And as I mentioned last year, I was able to come and be with you last year. It was my first time to be in the town of Rosenberg. And um, and now it's like, you know, I come through here and I, and I saw the school. I knew where to turn. So I felt like I was getting to know my way around. Um, but uh, it's good to be back here with you. Uh, of course, Andy and Catherine weren't here uh, when I was here last year, um, but I'm so happy uh, that they're here working with you. And uh, they're such a great family who love the Lord and who love His Word and love His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I'm, I was very happy to hear that they were moving uh, to work with this great congregation, and I look forward to the, the good work that you're going to do for our Lord together in the coming years. And so, Andy, you can pay me that $50 later. Um, but... Uh, no, I, I'm joking. I uh, love Andy and Catherine and, and their family. They're great, great people. Uh, I did want to uh, mention uh, my, my father-in-law, Tyler Young, who I think already spoke for you uh, this summer. Uh, he wanted me to tell the congregation hello, and uh, he preaches over at the League City Church of Christ, and, and uh, he enjoyed coming to speak over here as well. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you didn't cancel my speaking appointment once you met him, but uh, uh, he really enjoyed the time that he got to spend with you. There's something that a friend of mine uh, said several years ago in, in one of his sermons that he was preaching that really stuck with me. And he said that as Christians, we need to learn how to pray dangerous prayers. We need to learn how to pray dangerous prayers. And, and what he meant by that was, we need to pray that the Lord will increase our patience that the Lord will increase our hope, that He will give us a greater love for Him and a greater joy for Him. And, and we need to pray those prayers, but we also need to pray those prayers expecting that God's going to answer those prayers, realizing that sometimes the way God answers those prayers is through difficulty and struggle and trial. There's a process before there's the prize, right? James talks about how our patience often comes through having to joyfully endure trials in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. And I start off by, by talking about that because this prayer, if you will, that you've been looking at, and that's how I view it, prayer, a desire to God that you've been looking at over this summer, that God would increase, that the Lord would increase, that Jesus would increase, and that we would decrease. That's a dangerous prayer. That's a dangerous prayer. Of course, you know how God answered John's prayer or John's desire for that to happen. I want Jesus to increase and I want myself to decrease. How was that desire answered? He was in prison. He was beheaded. He was humiliated. And I, I have no doubt in my mind that all of you here this evening want Jesus to increase in your life. I, I, I believe that, that if you're a Christian and, and, you're, and you love the Lord and you love His truth, that's at the heart of your desire. You want Jesus to be more magnified in your life, to be greater in your life. 
But are you ready for God to answer that prayer? Are you really ready for God to to answer that desire? Now, does that mean that desiring God to be increased in my life means just a, a sentence of absolute misery and loss? Does that mean that my desire for for joy, for happiness and fulfillment have to be sacrificed for the sake of God's glory? Or or maybe maybe we would put it this way. Does God's glorification always come at the expense of my satisfaction and my fulfillment? Are those two polarizing opposite truths, God's magnification and my satisfaction, I would contend that they, in fact, are not. That the glorification of God is both tied into our ultimate and absolute happiness and satisfaction. And I want us to kind of dive into that thought tonight as we look at the actual main text of the theme in John chapter 3. And hopefully I won't be repeating what some of your previous speakers have said too much, but I do want us to turn to John chapter 3 and look there together and see what the Lord has for us. And I want us to start actually in verse 25 to kind of set the context for us. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over justification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. And whoever receives his testimony sets the seal of this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit of God without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, as we get into our text this evening, the the first point that I want us to recognize is the necessity of Jesus' exaltation. The necessity of Jesus' exaltation. Now, it's interesting to me that this context begins and is set by an argument or a discussion. Some of your translations might even say a debate. But we don't really know what it was about. It simply says, It was between some of John's disciples and a Jew over a matter of purification. Now, we can take our guesses about what that discussion was, but whatever it was, it led some of John's disciples to to come to him in verse 26 and essentially ask, why is everyone leaving and going to Jesus? Now, it seems to me, and I I might be reading into this too much, but it it seems to me that John's followers are, are kind of offended by that. Maybe just a little bit defensive of John's ministry. They've been with him for quite a long time. They've they've followed him and and they're wondering why all of a sudden they've had this great crowd of followers and now all of a sudden they're leaving. And it doesn't make sense to them. As they say in verse 26, he said, he was with you. You weren't with him. 
He was with you. You bore witness about him. Not the other way around. You baptized him, John. He didn't baptize you. And so this, they're, they're completely confused by this. Why is this happening? Their group is, is getting smaller and, and they're going to the new teacher down the road. And they're a little bit defensive of this, it seems. It's embarrassing for them, maybe. John, if your baptism is so good, if your baptism is, is supposed to do uh, what you say it's going to do, why are they going to be baptized by Jesus now? Maybe that was the discussion. And in response, John informs them that what's happening isn't happening by accident. This, John says, this is how it's supposed to happen. He says in verse 27, this edict is from heaven. Jesus couldn't have received this commission unless it had been given to him from heaven. And this kind of confirms something that later Jesus will say in John chapter 6 and verse 27, that all that the Father has given to him will come. And there's a connection there between the idea of, of giving. You know, this, he says this is a commission that he's received from the Father. John said, I, I have no... You know, what, do you want me to go to God and say, God, I don't like how this is going? He says, no, this is, this is an edict from heaven. And then he goes on to tell him in verse 28, not only is it an edict from heaven, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fulfillment of my own personal testimony. I told you several times, I am not the Christ. And it kind of reminds me of the frustration that Jesus himself later has to, or has to deal with in much of his ministry, where he tells the apostles something, and then like they believe the complete opposite of that, right? <laughs> you know, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not, right? And I can't imagine John saying, I'm not the Christ. And his disciples maybe are saying, well, yes, you are. And he's saying, I told you I'm not the Christ. So this is, this is a fulfillment of my own personal witness. And then in verse 29, and this is a thought that we'll look at a little bit later, but he says, it's the bridegroom's time. It's not my time. And then all of this leads up to his declaration in verse 30. He must increase. But I must decrease. Now I want you to notice that he doesn't say he will increase. And I will decrease. He says he must increase. And I must decrease. That word must is bold in my notes here. John views Jesus' exaltation as an absolute necessity that is built upon his own humiliation. He must increase, and I must decrease. Those, those two truths, in my mind, are inseparable. The increase of Jesus is going to absolutely result in the decrease of John. And for one to happen, the, the other must happen. These two realities are dependent on each other. In order for people to know about Jesus, they're going to have to forget about John. They're going to have to leave John behind. Again, are we, are, are we really ready for God to answer this prayer? I mean, are we really ready for that? Because in order for Jesus 
to increase in our lives, we must decrease. And sometimes, if we are being honest with ourselves, that can be absolutely agonizing. It doesn't feel good when you have to crucify yourself. It's not a pleasant picture. We want Jesus to be magnified, right? But we want Jesus to be magnified in our success. Jesus, give me a good job and I will praise your name. Give me a nice house. Lord, I'll let everybody know it's because of you. Give me good health, God, and, and, and I, will, I will exalt you. I will praise you. We want, we want God to be exalted, but we want it to be done through our success and through our esteem and through our magnification. But in reality, often the way God magnifies His worth to us and through us in this world is through trial and it's through difficulty and it's through struggle. I want to look at two verses to kind of show this point. And they're both in 2 Corinthians. So I want you to open your Bibles there to 2 Corinthians. They're both from Paul. First is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 8. And Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. I want you to notice the language that Paul uses there. He said, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He said, we felt as if someone had signed our death warrant. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that life has been so burdensome so oppressively difficult that you feel as if there is no hope in this life itself. Paul's like, we 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 thought, you know, we we thought that we could we could do it. And then all of a sudden another weight hit us, and another weight hit us, and another weight hit us. And he said we were just utterly burdened beyond our strength. Sometimes we look at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 and, and we say, well, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Okay, I, I, I don't quite think that's what Paul is saying there. I think what he's saying is that there's no temptation that we will receive that we can't overcome. Right? We, there's no temptation to sin that we can't say, well, I had to do that. Right? Because what Paul is clearly saying here is that he had more than he could handle. He said, it was beyond me. 
It was beyond my strength. But Paul sees a purpose in the suffering. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul's looking back at his suffering and he sees God working through that suffering for him. And, and what he sees is this, that God's ultimate purpose for Paul wasn't for Paul to be comfortable. Paul, Paul's ultimate purpose for Paul, ultimate purpose for Paul was, was not to never suffer heartache and despair. To never get discouraged. To never get depressed. That was not God's Paul, that was not God's ultimate purpose for Paul. God's ultimate purpose for Paul was that Paul would become absolutely dependent on the power and the sufficiency of God. And he says, God, I, I don't necessarily think he's saying, well, God made these things happen, but he's saying God worked through them to show that to rely more on him. And the only way he could do that was to allow Paul to be laid bare on the altar of sacrifice. And to allow those difficulties to push him to say, as the psalmist says in Psalm 73 and verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. In order for a radical hope in God's power to increase in the heart of Paul, there had to be an immense decrease in Paul's self-reliance. Paul says we needed to learn to rely on God more. And, and notice, by the way, the connection between, he says, we, we needed to learn to rely more on the God who raises the dead. And connect that back to how he said, we utterly despaired of life itself. I think what Paul is saying there is, I mean, he's saying, I completely lost hope in any hope of having a comfortable, fulfilling life now. And it pushed me to look beyond this current moment and say, but something better is coming. And that's what I'm going to put my hope in. It pushed him there. The second passage is found at the end of 2 Corinthians, and one that you're probably a little bit more familiar with in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is pleading and praying to the Lord 
in this instance to have some relief from some chronic illness that he struggled with. We don't know what it is, but it's often tied to bodily weakness. It made Paul feel very weak. It made him feel very vulnerable, I think. And the agony that he experienced because of this bodily ailment is seen in the fervency and the frequency with which he came to the Lord. He says, I pleaded with God. Over and over again, I pleaded with God. Take this ailment from me. I'm suffering. This is agonizing. Lord, I'm doing your work. And the Lord says, no. But no for a reason. He says no because Paul, through your weak and broken body, I can magnify the sufficiency of my grace and of my power. Wow. Would you be satisfied with that answer? I I don't know if I would be. I'm being honest. Lord, I'm hurting. Take this away. No, because through this, I'm going to magnify myself. I'm going to show something great about myself and my grace and my power. And Paul doesn't say, yeah, but, 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 but God, this is, this is, but he doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to start boasting. And I'm going to boast in the difficulties I have to endure. And he comes to this radical conclusion. When I am weak, then I am strong. And and it reminds us probably of a verse that American Christianity, I believe, has greatly abused. Philippians 4 and verse 13. Right? I can do all things... Through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. What does that mean in American Christianity? <laughs> that means Jesus is going to give you the power to run a 70-yard touchdown uh, in, in NFL football, right? That's what it's come to mean, right? You see in the NFL games, and they have Philippians 4 and verse 13 on the on the poster boards, or or they have it under their eyes, right? Philippians 4 and verse 13. I'm glad to see Scripture at major sporting events. Don't get me wrong. But that's not the point of this birth. Paul isn't saying that he's going to give you strength to run for a touchdown on Super Bowl Sunday. What he's saying is that he's going to show his strength and he's going to show his power and he's going to show the worth of his grace through the old man who has MS, who makes his way to worship every single Sunday and who can barely control his tremors, but he's praising Jesus. And he's going to show his grace and his power through the, the blind sister at the nursing home who makes knits little, little, little blankets for the newborn babies. And he's going to show his grace and his power through the, through the brother who's behind prison bars and is setting up Bible studies with fellow inmates. He's saying, I'm going to take people who are weak, who are absolutely emptied of self-reliance, and I'm going to fill them up with my grace and my power.
And I'm going to magnify my name through them. He must increase. But in order for that to happen, sometimes, many times, all the time, we must decrease. Our pride, our arrogance, our self-reliance, that has to be absolutely crucified before Jesus can magnify Himself in us. Now, does that mean, though, that we're simply consigned to some bitter existence in which we're just walking around and exalting God and just absolutely miserable? I don't believe so. Which leads us to our second point, which is not only is there the necessity of Jesus' exaltation, but there is the joy in my humiliation. Now, notice the contrast between John and his disciples. They come to him worried, defensive, and he is rejoicing. Look in verse 29. Uh, turn back your Bibles to John chapter 3. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. There's no somber spirit here for John. There's no self-pity that John's experiencing. But there is a man who is absolutely overflowing in unbridled enthusiasm that he is being completely forgotten. <laughs> They're leaving him. And he's, he's rejoicing. How is that possible? How is it possible that joy can be experienced when everything he's worked for is vanishing? John again gives the answer, I think, in verse 29. He says, I'm just the best man. The bridegroom's here. Spotlight's on him now. Notice that he focuses on the voice of the bridegroom, which I find is interesting. Because up to this point, John has been referred to as, what? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's been his identity before he was born. He's the voice. And now Paul is saying, there's another voice here. And, and that voice is much more important than my voice. And, and John's voice is, is fading. And he's becoming forgotten. His entire identity is fading away. And he's rejoicing. How? Because he is absolutely, utterly in love with the bridegroom. Because he has this deep love for Jesus. And the only way he has this joy in his willing humiliation is because of that. He knows this is the moment he's been waiting for his entire life. This is about him. This is about the, 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 the groom. This isn't about the best man standing in the shadows. He's made the speech, and now it's time for the groom to be in the spotlight. And John takes joy in his humiliation because in John's heart, Christ has been exalted this whole time. He tells the people in Luke 3 and verse 16, long 
not long before, but before Jesus comes onto the scene, and he says, there's someone coming whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. So, so the exaltation of Jesus has been there for John. But also this joy, I am convinced, can be experienced because John knows what's happening now is far greater than him. Whatever temporary happiness John may have received from trying to kind of keep his followers to himself, whatever joy he might have received by exalting himself, by making a name for himself, is nothing compared to the joy that will come now by seeing Jesus and his people. And the, what John shows us is that the eyes of faith look beyond the current passing moment of pleasure and selfishness and self-exaltation, and they look for a greater joy that is coming through our willing humiliation to Jesus Christ. And what this means is that God is not wanting to exalt Jesus at the expense of your joy, but He wants to exalt Jesus to magnify and complete your joy. Because it's only when we see Jesus for who Jesus really is that, that our joy is fully complete. And this is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 1, verses 20 through 21. When he says, it's my earnest expectation and my hope that in all things, as always, now also, Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ, to die, he says, is gain. And in this realization that my number one aim is the magnification of Jesus Christ for the completion of my joy, there is a great freedom that transforms us, which leads us to our third point and our final point, the freedom of this transformation. I want you to notice a connection in John 3 that I hadn't noticed before really studying this. Uh, it's in verse 28. Oh, excuse me. Um, verse 26. Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing. Now, if you're in the habit of underlining or circling something in your Bible, you might want to do this. Circle the word all. All are going to him. And then draw a line from that circle all the way down to verse 35. The Father loves His Son and He's given all things into His hands. His disciples are concerned. All are going to Him. And John says, all of them were never mine. The, the Father loves the Son and He's given all things into His hands. They were never mine. They're, they're His. And again, you, it's almost like this deep sigh of satisfaction that John has as he sees these followers leaving. It's this deep sigh of satisfaction. It's like the best man watching his best friend run away with the bride through the throwing of the rice and the photos are being taken and everyone's forgetting about the best man. But he's watching his friend run away with his bride and he's... He's so, so happy. He's so joyful. It's all about Him. 
That's really the message here. And brethren, there is a blessed freedom in realizing that this life is not about me. That it isn't about my success. It's not about my notoriety. It isn't about my personal achievements or my passing pleasures. It isn't even about my pride. It's not even about my shame. It's not even about what people say or think about me. And what we, what I realize as I read this text is that it's okay if Jacob's name is forgotten. It's okay if Jacob's name is derided and scorned. It's okay if Jacob is racked with chronic pain. It's okay if Jacob's dreams aren't fulfilled. And it's okay if his hopes aren't realized. Because it isn't about me. And it's not about you. And and if we could just get that, if we could just see that, there's great freedom in that. And then we learn this utter self-reliance on a God who promises that within the resurrection, He redeems all of that beyond our wildest dreams because of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And in that truth, I discover absolute, satisfactory joy. It's by no accident that We live in one of the most self-obsessed generations, right? It's sometimes called the me generation, Um, the selfie, right, the selfie. (laughs) We live in one of the most self-obsessed generations, and I think it's by no accident that we, they are also one of the most highly dissatisfied and depressed generations that we've ever seen. Interestingly enough, there's been studies done on millennials. I'm a millennial. And uh, there's been studies done on millennials that say um, that that their generation has the highest view of themselves uh, individually. But ironically, at the same time, the lowest view of themselves collectively. So they have the highest views of themselves individually, but the lowest view of their own generation. What that translates to me is that uh, everybody's got a problem, but I'm not in, right? Um, there's a big problem, but it's not me. I'm not a part of the problem. Right? That's a recipe for absolute disaster, by the way. I'm convinced, though, that self-exaltation eventually leads to self-loathing. I'm, not, I'm convinced of it because I've done it myself. Okay? So the more you try and exalt yourself, the more you pursue selfish ambition... In fact, actually, the more you begin to hate yourself. Because the higher the pedestal goes, the more clarity you see in your own deficiencies and your own sins. The more spotlight is there. And one of the greatest things that God can do for us is to tear down our own thrones. One of the greatest things that God can do for us is to assault our own kingdoms that we build up for ourselves. To absolutely... Level these kingdoms that we build up around our own pride and our own power.
power and our own achievements. And we were just talking to our congregation about this because we were uh, talking about kind of going through a study in 1 Corinthians on Sunday evenings. And um, Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he's talking about not many are powerful, not many are noble that are called, many of you are weak, many of you have no noble birth. And then he gets to the end, the end of verse chapter 1, and he says the purpose of this is that no man can boast except for in the Lord. Right? So what Paul is saying there is God does not want arrogant little humans walking around who think they're the next best thing. But that's exactly what our culture is trying to produce in our young people. It's arrogant little humans who think they're the next best thing. And God says, I don't want that. I want people who see themselves in their sin and they see the, the grace that I give them and they respond to that in obedient faith and they realize it's about me and not them. And so, real quickly, as we finish, this discussion is on the heels of the new birth which I think is interesting. And he just had the discussion of the new birth with Nicodemus. And notice what he says in verse 21. Jesus says in verse 21, right before this discussion starts with John, he says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Notice, he comes to the light so that people don't see him, someone who's been, who has, has, has been born again, they come so that people can see them and magnify God. So that they can glorify God. And then John tells a story in which John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Through us, God's work and worth and grace and power can be magnified. And that's something to pray about. question is, are we ready for the Lord to answer? Thank you for the time that I've had with you this evening to spend with you and appreciate you and the good work that you do here at your congregation.